Hello and a warm welcome to another edition of Econa Day Unplugged. It's Wednesday the 9th of December 2020. Mark Pender stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Is a coming, but whether the same can be said of a post-Brexit trade deal, well, who knows? Anyway, with that in mind, we thought this week we could start in Europe, where the focus is very much on Brexit and, of course, the European Central Bank meeting on Thursday. Both outcomes will clearly be very important to how markets trade in 2021. So to the seemingly never-ending Brexit saga then. Well, surprise, surprise, we're still waiting. Plenty of talking in the last week, but little sign of any progress. Uh, crucially, still major gaps over well, the three issues which have been the problems for a long time now. Those being uh, EU access to British fishing waters, um, state aid, the so-called level playing field, and, and how to police disputes over that and any other trade issues. Now, we're just, what, 22 days away from the end of the current transition period, during which the UK has essentially been trading as if it were an EU member. So whatever happens now, we're really well into the end game. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will have dinner with uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in Brussels uh, this evening. That's Wednesday, something that's already been called Brexit's Last Supper. Both, though, will have to give concessions if the talks are to proceed. Um, but both would also have to sell any compromises to national governments that may not be overly impressed. Already, um, some news coming out suggests that people should not be expecting too much from this meeting, rather just something which perhaps is sufficiently positive that the talks can continue over the next few days. Um, certainly, if it looks as if there's been no progress whatsoever, chances are European stock markets will open under pressure on Thursday morning. Both the euro and particular pound would likely be in for a rough ride as well, probably to the benefit of the dollar. I guess um, at this stage, it's just quickly worthwhile mentioning what, what if there is no deal. Well, in a nutshell, I mean, the UK and the EU would trade with each other on World Trade Organization rules, at least initially anyway. So both sides would impose tariffs on imported goods from across the channel and potentially just as importantly, if not more so, especially at the outset, the whole process of trade between the two would be hampered by non-tariff barriers, notably lengthy, lengthy checks on the product standards. In fact, just today, we heard that one of the major supermarkets in the UK has said it's been uh, started precautionary stockpiling of food some while ago now. And it's got to be said that makes perfect sense since UK ports have been reporting that they've been struggling to handle just existing workload um, due to too many layoffs being caused by the first round of the coronavirus lockdown. And that, of course, is before the Brexit proper has even started. So bottom line then is that a no deal would be bad for the UK and for continental Europe. But as I said earlier, expect the biggest hits probably to be to the UK economy and the pound. And that, and that would mean the, uh, so a hit on the pound and also an equal hit on the euro? I think, to be honest, it's going to be disproportionately bad for the UK. I mean, it's clearly bad for both economies. But at the end of the day, the share of UK exports going into, going into the European Union and indeed the share of imports coming out of the European Union is much larger for the UK than it is for the European Union. So, yes, for, for the European Union, you know, its exports going into the UK will hit by, be hit by tariffs and these non-tariff barriers, which are much smaller percentage of European exports coming into the UK than is of Europe of UK exports, if I can get my teeth around it, going into Europe. So yeah, proportionately, well, you'd expect the pounds to suffer more. Can I ask you about the Irish border? Now, why isn't that agreement a sign of affability or whatever, that, that the two sides are coming together? 
It, it, it is. I mean, um, perhaps I should just mention that as of yesterday, there was um, a joint UK-EU committee which looks at the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. So the, the, the actual Brexit deal itself, which was signed off what, over a year ago now. Um, now, the, the UK was been talking about putting through its so-called internal market bill, which strives to ensure that there is a free flow of goods and services in, around all UK uh, markets. Now, of course, within the UK, we include Northern Ireland. The problem becomes then next year when the UK leaves um, the European Union, but because everyone wants to keep no barrier between trade between Northern Ireland and Southern, Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland would effectively be trading as if it were part of the EU, which essentially means that the UK could send goods into the EU by Northern Ireland because there'd be no checks. Now, yesterday, it looks as if there was an agreement over what they can do about sending um, these protocol regarding checks on borders and stuff of goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Um, it looks as if it means as a result that the risk to the Brexit withdrawal bill that the UK could actually um, ignore some of the original Northern Ireland protocol, which would be against international law. That looks now to be a non-issue. And um, certainly the view was yesterday, well, look, this has got to be good news for the actual deals. However, this is really something which is completely independent of the trade deal itself. This is much more to do with politics and whether or not you know, the UK is actually going to break international law. So what exactly happens now? Uh, uh, what is that? The Irish Sea? Is, OK, so is it, well, what, what happens there? I mean, well, kind uh, of. Yeah, I'm to be honest. I mean, I think um, the work was the discussion taking place in the UK House of Commons today about some of the details on this, which I must say, I've not had a chance to go through completely yet. And indeed, they're still coming out as we speak. But ostensibly, it does seem that there will be, as you mentioned, effectively a semi-border at least, which will be the Irish Sea. So that the water between the uh, Great Britain and uh, Northern Ireland, the other part of the United Kingdom, which means that goods going into Northern Ireland destined for the European Union will have to face some kind of border checks um, either when they leave Great Britain or when they actually arrive in Northern Ireland, particularly probably at the likes of Belfast Airport. And so. Well, what's going to happen? Why don't they just uh, want, uh, uh, the risk of just displacing manufacturing into Northern Ireland? Well, they're right about you know because effectively Ireland will be trading as part of the common the single European market, whereas the rest of Great Britain isn't part of it. So the European Union is a bit desperate to make sure that the UK does not get the advantage of being part in the, a part of the single European market when it's not actually part of it. So it all starts effectively means trying to put a border where you can't have a border, shouldn't shouldn't have a border in the first place, or I suppose to put it the other way around, saying try not to put a border when you do need a border. So it's going to be a case of compromises on both sides but you know there is this general agreement that no one wants to see a renewed border between southern ireland and northern ireland for all the politics we've seen in the past it sounds like it's going to be a gentleman's agreement between well yeah i think that's right the question is will will you know either side be trusting the you know the check put in by you know, the UK or whoever it may be. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. But certainly, I mean, it is a step in the right direction, but it it doesn't tell us what's going to come out of, well, tonight's meeting, today tonight's dinner between the, the EU president and the UK prime minister, um, or indeed whether or not we can actually get a Brexit trade deal through or not. 
I mean, if you remember, we've been talking about this for so long now, and it wasn't wasn't that long ago that supposedly the deadlines were back in October and then November, because this all the, if we do get an agreement, it's supposed to be ratified by all the various EU member parliaments, including including Hungary and Poland. Well, including Hungary and Poland. Yes, that's right at this stage. And I suppose actually that takes us on to one of the other issues, which is worthwhile talking about concerning Europe, is where we stand on on that at the moment. Now, I think as we mentioned last week, there's this big issue of this fiscal well, COVID rescue program that the European Commission is trying to put through um, for, for next year as part of the overall EU budget. And as things currently stand, we still have no agreement uh, with, with, with um, Hungary and Poland actually signing off on this thing. So it seems that... At the moment, um, at least the latest coming out of Brussels, is that a second package may be put together that actually omits Hungary and Poland, the two states, say, blocking the, blocking the rescue package at the moment, um, such that it would really just cover the remaining 25 members in Hungary and Poland would not have access to the, the COVID rescue funds. Um, now, that may or may not happen. And as we speak, there was a short while ago on the wires of some comments coming out of Germany, which currently holds the the EU presidency, talking about the possibility that the the law of standards, which is the big issue for the Poles and Hungarians, attached to disbursement of the rescue funds being watered down um, so that perhaps they'd be prepared to sign off on it now what exactly what this means and how far they're prepared to go down the track of saying it doesn't really matter whether you you buy by the the rules of a democracy or not um, we don't really know but certainly if that doesn't happen and we were to see essentially the european union sort of splitting uh with 25 members versus poland and hungary uh putting together their own budget together and the other side being left alone um, then it can't be good news for sort of the long-term stability of politics across the European Union. I suppose by association, it's got to start raising fresh doubts as to whether or not you know, the eurozone itself can survive over the longer term. Um, and if those issues are raised, we would have selling of the periphery oh, I think bonds? So, yeah. If people start thinking of the European Union falling apart in any shape or form, then all of a sudden it's going to be, you know, <laughs> you know, the dollar may be looking a bit soft at the moment, but it could make all that back extremely quickly. Now, these are huge issues, clearly, and it's, it's worthwhile, I think, remembering that when you look at the net beneficiaries um, from the EU budget, um, Poland and Hungary are two who fare extremely well. So really, they've got to be careful here. They don't actually end up you know, cutting their own throat, throat by you know, refusing to solve off on the budget, which ultimately would be extremely beneficial for them. Now, now, they, I mean, the, the ECB meetings on Thursday, how does the yep. ECB address these issues? Does it refer to them vaguely or does it specifically cite these issues? I'll tell you what, in footballing terms, I think the poor old ECB must be as sick as a parrot. Um, the central bank has been banging the drum really throughout this year, but particularly ever since this COVID rescue package started to be put together about the need for European fiscal policies and particularly pan-European fiscal policy to provide monetary policy with support. I mean, outside of the relaxation of national policies we've seen out of the lights of Germany, France and Spain and Italy in particular, there's been nothing really at the, can't you, at the combined level. Um, so it's really come down to the poor old ECB having to keep on pushing.
far as it possibly can with regard to its own monetary policy tools. And it's expected to do the same again when we get to Thursday. Um, I'd be very surprised um, if uh, Christine Lagarde, the ECD president, doesn't come out and say you know, she's at least disappointed or at the very minimum stress you know, just how vital it is that this COVID rescue package is put through. And as it is, it comes into very, if it if it meets any kind of deadline, the main impact won't really be seen until at least the second half of next year. So we've really got to get on with this. And how would she address Brexit? Brexit, I think there's not much she can do. It's kind of, well, we just take it or leave it. I mean, she doesn't have any power to say, well, look, I'm sure she she wouldn't have wanted Brexit in the first place because she realises it's going to be bad for both economies. Um, she much, What she might well do is to look at the potential impact of a, a no Brexit trade deal on the euro. And that, I think, is something she will mention. Um, euro dollar as we speak, where are we trading around about the 121 level or so at the moment, um, which is above the levels we saw back in September when the ECB started making noises to the fact that, OK, no, we don't have an exchange rate target, but the level of the euro does have implications for inflation in the eurozone. And it's pretty obvious at that stage when what euro is about 118 um, dollar Euro dollars at 1.18. And it's pretty clear at that stage that the ECB were unhappy with that particular level. And of course, since then, we've seen Eurozone core inflation move to successive lows. It's a record 0.2% at the moment. So the last thing that ECB wants, when it's still trying to get inflation up, mm-hmm. and bear in mind its mandate is still ostensibly all about hitting its 2% or near 2% inflation target. The last thing it wants is a stronger Euro, which weakens import prices and hence feeds through into domestic prices. But I think in terms of what they will do anyway, um, they kind of boxed in now. I think all the talk coming out of the ECB over the last several weeks, or really they laid the, um, you know, the, the ground at the last meeting, is that they will do something on Friday. It's on Friday, on Thursday. I think the expectation now probably is that we'll see, well, there's no expectation still on interest rates. So the uh, the refi rate is expected to remain at zero. What's become really the benchmark um, interest rate, the deposit rate, which sets to floor to rates, is expected to remain at minus 0.5%. But what they will do, almost certainly, is to increase quantitative easing. Now, they've got you know, the different tools for this. They've got the asset purchase program, which is the original quantitative easing tool, which currently stands at 20 billion a month and is pretty well open ended at this stage. Um, They also have the PEP, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, which currently stands at 1.35 trillion. And that's been the main um, quantitative easing tool they've been using over the last several months. Um, Now, the thing to bear in mind here is that in addition to the asset purchase program, they announced um, what, a few months ago now this additional 120 billion so-called temporary envelope of asset purchases that will expire at the end of December. So in other words, if they don't do anything with quantitative easing, then we'll be seeing fewer asset sales next year anyway, just because the because the temporary envelope is going to be completed. So it's real guarantees and it will get some kind of increase in quantitative easing. But the so expect- they're going to extend the temporary envelope? Well, I don't think they will. Well, they could do. They may introduce a new temporary envelope. Um, but what I think is perhaps more likely is that, you know, the hit from the loss of a temporary envelope will be more than made up for by what they do in the PEP. And I think the market expectation or consensus at the moment is probably for an increase of the PEP. So this emergency purchase program around about half a trillion or so. So that would take it up to what 1.85 trillion. Perhaps they could even take it up as high as 2 trillion. And that would be a, clearly a significant boost. 
in addition it, yeah and that's a fixed amount and the asset purchase program is a unlimited or a, a monthly amount yeah with an unlimited time frame well yeah as it currently stands at the moment the asset purchase program is fixed at 20 billion um euros a month um with a it's open-ended essentially until uh-huh. they regard that if economy is doing well enough etc etc are the securities that they purchase under these two programs different um, they're very small. Basically, anything which can be purchased under the asset purchase program is eligible in the PEP. But the PEP also includes some assets, some non-investment grade assets, including Greek bonds, which mm-hmm. the asset purchase program doesn't include. So, And the other key thing about this, as you mentioned, the, the asset purchase program is a fixed quantity of purchases per month. The PEP, it just simply has a ceiling over a time frame. And within that, the ECB can do a lot one month if it thinks it's it's necessary not to only another month if it doesn't think it needs to so it's much more flexible but one thing i think they will do just to rub this thing in is that they'll make the of the pep this is currently scheduled to last at least until mid 2021 well they'll probably say now it's going to be until at least the middle of 2022 or something like that maybe perhaps to the end of 2022 so it's going to be a case of increasing quantitative easing per se increasing the duration as well and on top of that um we, it's, it's clear from the way they've been talking about, you know, that they're clearly worried about the economy. They hate the fact that inflation has been so far below target for so long. They're worried about all the COVID cases across Europe, which are coming down now, but they're coming down from record highs and they are still very high. Um, so they've got all that to worry about. And it, it does seem in particular that they're also concerned now about signs from their own lending surveys that banks are tightening their credit standards. Mm. And indeed, there's been uh, some fall off in loan demand as well. So what they will do on top of the PEP and perhaps the APP is uh, I suspect they extend this um, refinancing program, a so-called targeted longer term refinancing operations, the Teltros. They're currently due to end in June next year. Well, I expect them to be extended, I guess, for another six or 12 months there, too. And this is to provide uh, uh, lending? Um, yeah, this, yeah, I should, I should say it's targeted, which is what they're after. At the end of the day, you can keep throwing money at these things, but you really want to throw it at the right places. So by targeted, what they're doing, it's essentially it's cheap lending for banks. So it's the ECB going to the, the, the banks and saying, well, look, we'll lend to you at a, effective, a ridiculously low rate on the grounds that you mm-hmm. go and on lend it into the private sector. And it means that depending upon the amount of lending they do, they can oh. borrow from the ECB be at the deposit rate, which is already at minus 0.5%, less an additional 50 basis points. So ostensibly, we can get these banks borrowing from the central bank at a rate of minus 1%. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, you can see why it's been so popular since they launched it. Question now, turning back to QE. Um, you, you wrote an article on this uh, the other day here in Econoday uh, that um, I uh, encourage the readers to uh, listeners to read. Um, you make the point that the yield curve is entirely um, the European year curve is uh, entirely below zero. Um, yeah, out to at least so what? Years. So I mean, additional asset purchases. What you know is this pushing on the string? I mean, what what, what do they need to buy something else other than bonds? 
It may be. I mean, to be honest, I think the answer to that is yes. I think it really is a case of a law of diminishing returns here. I think it's got to the stage now if asset prices are going to do you know, additional asset purchases are going to do anything. Yes, I mean, may help to stop um, you know, longer dated maturities from moving back up into positive territory and dampening down demand to the extent that it would do that. But if we're going to see them really push yields down any lower, then we probably need to see the shorter end of the yield curve you know, going down further as well, which would mean reduce reducing um, deposit rate perhaps down to minus one percent or something like that and there doesn't appear to be any interest in doing that so I think this is really a case of you know just putting more money into the system hoping that it will find its way into you know parts of the real economy make sure at least liquidity is there um, with, with a view to you know just trying to keep things going and I think you know, it's worthwhile mentioning with regards to this PEP um, as we stand at the moment only around about what half of the of the existing PEP has been used. So from a purely technical viewpoint, there's no pressure on the ECB to come out and raise the PEP anyway, bar this loss of the uh, the, the temporary envelope from the asset purchase program. Well, that doesn't take you that much closer to the, you know, to the current PEP ceiling anyway. So really, if they come out and announce you know, an increase in the PEP and uh, you know, an extension of maturity, I think it's simply just more to do with you know, the confidence factor of sending a message to the market. Well, look, we've got this socking great backstop in there now. So as things start going pear-shaped, then we've got, you know, what a trillion or whatever it may be that we can use to start, you know, putting liquidity back into the system to make sure you know, it flows around as well as it possibly can do. So I think as much as anything else, it's kind of a, it's a confidence issue in this. Let's turn to the Bank of Canada. You you did that this morning. Um, no action there. Tell us about the Bank of Canada QE. When did it start? Uh, well, QE's been going well. Again, they joined in with the pandemic folks. They weren't one of the first people to do it, but they've really got involved in it since uh, the, you know, the COVID issue became major. Um, having said which, unlike uh, many other central banks, they've actually, you know, the economy itself has got to be said has probably outperformed most expectations. Yes, it's been hit by COVID, but it hasn't been hit as aggressively as we saw well, just last week from the employment report. Um, despite tighter COVID restrictions they've had to introduce over the last month or so, um, by and large, the economy is sort of doing OK. And the Bank of Canada mentioned that in its text today. Um, so what they've actually done as of the October meeting, they were running at a minimum net asset purchase level of where are we? Five billion Canadian dollars um, a week. That was cut in October down to a minimum of four billion. Now, they didn't change that today, but I think if the economy can continue to do as it's doing at the moment and the vaccines rolled out next year and hopefully things look that much better, then we'll see QE being wound up in Canada probably rather before we see it being wound up in most at most other places, notably the likes of the, you know, the UK and Europe. Um, I don't know what your view is. You know, when's, I suppose going across to you, when do you think um, QE might finally be ended in terms of US? Oh, uh, it, it's not. I don't think it's a, a topic of discussion. Uh, uh, the idea of withdrawing uh, stimulus is uh, a theoretical, and we do have well, to. Well, say rather withdrawing we, it. Well, actually, say reducing the amount of stimulus. So, I mean, uh -huh. yeah, you know, monthly right. purchase, whatever, just gradually fading out a little bit. So, stimulus is still there, but it's not being increased. Exactly. Yes, yeah, less stimulus, withdrawing stimulus, but um, uh, it's not any time. Uh, you know, are, are they thinking about thinking about it? So I think that that, <laughs> that will be, and, and we do have to pay attention.
a super uh, sensitive yeah, and moment, that's moment the, in the markets. Dare but, you be dare you be seen to be thinking about it? Is the yes, other issue, right. It? Yes, even dreaming about it. So, yeah, um, yeah but it's uh, I, I think it's you know too far off. It's the same with the inflation. It's going in the wrong direction here. Uh, the PCE um, index went down a tenth or two in the core and the overall, and the, the, about one and a half, a little bit below one and a half percent, and that's not very good. And it, um, so they, and that's really what they're going to be looking for. I, I think that they're going to allow employment to uh, do whatever it can, and if the unemployment rate continues to uh, improve, and, and hopefully it will. I don't think that that's going to be the signal they're looking at. I think that they're going to be trying to get inflation up because of their experience over the last dozen years where employment went really low, 3.5%, and inflation just sat there below target. So they're going to – I think it's – going to keep a lot of stimulus going until you can see that that lift in this uh, odd and mysterious uh, lack of inflation. But, you know, you also have to cover next week, you have the Bank of England meeting, right? Also a Swiss National Bank. I mean, can you, I mean, we can't go on forever like this, but can you touch on those uh, briefly? Yeah, because they're quite, well, I say they're quite easy ones, obviously famous last words in these kind of markets. But I think for the Bank of England, I mean, they've only just introduced their last um, quantitative easing package. So I think it's it's a done deal that that will be a, a short meeting. They won't have too much to say. And ditto really for the Swiss National Bank, as we've talked about in uh, you know, previous uh, podcasts. For them, as much as anything else, it's about performance of the currency at the moment. And um, we're looking at Euro Swiss, which is a sort of a key benchmark. Well, the uh, that's well above you know, the lows we saw when um, the Swiss National Bank was well contemplating possibly another cut in interest rates and certainly relatively aggressively intervening in the, in the FX market. So selling Swiss francs and buying euros. Just uh, just, just putting something together for next week, looking at some of the net intervention levels. It seems as if the Swiss National Bank really since the middle of what about November to early November, they've hardly done any of any intervention whatsoever. In fact, if anything, they've actually done it the other way around. So just buying a few Swiss francs to, um, you know, just to stabilize their, their, their FX reserves. So it does seem for both of those meetings next week that um, it's going to be a relatively quiet one uh, for the Swiss simply because the pressure is not on them at the moment and for the Bank of England because they've done what they need to do for the time being. And talking of time being, we have been um, talking for probably rather a long time. Anything else you want to put in from your side before we wind this thing up? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think that, the, you know, the general global economy is um, a little, oh, there is. We have to talk about Chinese trade. I wanted to, to you know, we had this enormous burst in, in Chinese exports. Um, when did that come out? That came out Monday. Yeah. Um, and and that's what I and I've been pointing out or concerned about their lack of import growth. And I, I, I saw that in that uh, report again, uh, the low mid single digit year on year comparison for imports. And I can't remember what the exports were, almost 20 percent, maybe growth somewhere in there. And Actually, uh, exports got so looking in front of me. Exports are up 46. These, these are total exports, so not just the U.S., but total exports are up 46.1 percent. Um Imports were up, where are we, as you say, 32.7%. Okay, wait, wait, hang on now. Wait a minute here. Uh, okay, I'm looking at uh, in um, – okay, so yeah, this came out at uh, Chinese uh, time or in the morning of Monday. Year-on-year growth for imports and 21.1% for exports. 
Um, uh, maybe dollars versus. I don't these know, are U.S. Versus. dollar terms, yeah. And this is a, the overall trade, and and you know their monthly surplus is 75 billion U.S. dollars. Well, so they're are, doing very well, but they have to share the wealth here. You know, they have to buy other people's goods too. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the sort of political aspects of this was the uh, the well, it's the fact that it would appear to be at least in part COVID related. In a sense, it, it would seem that of the whatever the size was, this hugely we saw in exports was in large measure due to sales of um, PPE, personal protective mm-hmm. equipment, you mm-hmm. know, for protection against COVID. Um, which, if you if we go down the road that you know, COVID started in China in the first place, they appear to be benefiting now <laughs> from the problems elsewhere in the world. I'm not sure if I want to touch too much upon that. No, no. Well, I, I, just, yeah, I had one last thing to say, and that was, uh, and that's uh, one in contrast to uh, others. Yeah, most definitely. Actually, one, I have one last thing to say as well, at least to ask you, since um, if you can answer this in perhaps two sentences. Okay, I saw okay. was yet yet more talk about a fiscal stimulus package out before year end, yay or nay? Oh, I, I, uh, I have to guess. Um, boy, you know, uh, uh, after the employment report uh, on Friday, um, that was very weak. I can't wait. We, we, I guess we should have to talk about this. It was 245,000. Um, increase. And remember, we were talking about the beige book uh, last podcast and it was coming out mm-hmm. and I was describing um, the Fed's assessment. And it, that's exactly what happened. Low uh, end employment growth. Well, after that, everyone was very conciliatory, uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats. That was Friday and s- something was supposed to happen on Monday. And now a $900 billion deal that the uh, Democrats were offering and they were going to start at that. And now that has uh, seems to have um, uh, not made any progress. So, uh, yeah, I would say no, I guess. I mean, that, unfortunately, I don't think um, there's the political will yet uh, to um, to come up with. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have the unemployment benefits rolling off at, at the end yeah. of this month. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be a critical problem. So but the Republicans have to get on board. Uh, before uh, you know the new administration comes in, if there's going to be a deal, so bit like Brexit, watch this space. Well, I think that is enough politics for this week, so let us call it a day. Um, we'll be back again next week, and in the interim, you can always keep up to date, as I'm sure you know by now, with all the key market moving days from events in a common day's global economic calendar. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>